Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Welcome to Talk. It's nice to be back. We spent some time in the summer playing previous episodes and now we are moving into some new shows, which is exciting, great guests, interesting stories. Today in the news, first article from the Toronto Sun, every parent's worst and unimaginable nightmare is losing their child. Eric Windler lives that tragic nightmare daily. His son Jack died by suicide in his first year at university. He wasn't much different from other university students, including the two million students who've just set foot on post-secondary campuses across Canada, many who face social and academic challenges far away from home. On the surface, Jack seemed fine. The 19-year-old was very bright and friendly and pursuing life sciences at Queen's University. His dad says, we only discovered after his passing that Jack had disengaged from classes and social activities for several months. He was able to hide it at home. Behavioral changes had been noticed at school, but unfortunately not associated with a critical mental health struggle. Wendler is committed to changing that. He founded Jack.org to help educate youth on mental health and to teach them to look out for one another. This involves connecting them with different supports that they need to prevent future Jack tragedies. Jack.org trains and empowers young leaders in every province and in territory to go out, break down deadly mental health barriers, and end the silence through programs like Jack Talks and Jack Summits in different schools and communities. To date, there are 2,500 young leaders across Canada and counting. Jack's story is all too common and so too mental health issues among students. Wendler says, For the majority of young people struggling, embarrassment, shame, and lack of education about mental health can prevent them from seeking support. That's why suicide is the leading cause of non-accidental death among youth. Between 2013 and 2016, suicide attempts rose by 47%. This, according to the American College Health Association survey of more than 25,000 Ontario University students. Psychological distress is rising at an alarming rate, and campuses reportedly can't keep up with the demand for mental health services. We all have mental health, and the conversation needs to be broader than individual illnesses, says Jack's father. Uh, The crisis requires accelerating education of young people and those who support them, along with focusing on prevention and promotion and early connection to appropriate services. The bright side is that we're being loud. We're talking about it, and change is happening. Windler is the recipient of the 2018 Queen's Alumni Humanitarian of the Year Award and one of the 150 CAMH Difference Makers for Mental Health in Canada. 
We likely all know a Jack, someone who is struggling in silence, someone who we love dearly. By being educated, we can be a safe space for the people that we care most about and be there for them when they're struggling with their mental health issues. Uh, Windler says that anyone can join the movement and can head over to jack.org for more information. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Moving on now to CBC News. Calgary woman named Danielle, like many others in her situation, uh, often end up in emergency room departments simply because the merry-go-round of mental health treatments is difficult to navigate. Danielle says she can't remember how many times she's been to emergency departments getting stitches after harming herself or seeking help for bouts of sadness and anxiety. She says, I'm on a merry-go-round where I keep getting reconnected to the same services that frankly have not worked in the past. I feel like the only reason I'm getting any sort of attention is because I'm demanding it. I'm going to the hospital and I'm refusing to leave and I'm refusing to go away. Calgary woman in her 20s has long suffered from mental health issues, but she says her condition was made far worse by a sexual assault four years ago. CBC News is not publishing her last name simply to protect her identity. Calgary emergency rooms are seeing rising numbers of patients with mental health concerns, sometimes spending days waiting to be admitted. According to the Provincial Health Authority, it's not unusual for Calgary's roughly 200 acute care mental health beds to be full. In the 17-18 fiscal year, Calgary area emergency rooms saw 30,000 visits from patients whose primary concern was their mental health, according to Alberta Health Services. About 77% of them were treated and discharged, referred to community supports if needed. The remaining 23% were admitted to an inpatient bed. The vast majority of those patients received the care they needed, and when they needed it, the health authority said in a statement, adding it has opened 30 mental health beds in Calgary since 2015. From April of last year to March 2018, patients with mental health challenges spent an average of 18 hours in emergency departments from the time staff decided to admit them to the time they were moved to the inpatient unit. We're sometimes feeling like the safety valve for the system, says Dr. Eddie Lang, head of emergency medicine in Calgary, He says when there are insufficient beds upstairs for people who do need to come in, they often spend extended periods of time with us in the emergency department. Danielle said she often ends up in the ER because she feels she has nowhere else to go. Her latest visit was a few days ago. She had earlier been admitted to an outpatient program that offered therapy, counseling, and help with coping skills but she said she was ultimately turned away because she has a service dog which helps her deal with stressful environments. A nurse had given her a list of phone numbers in Calgary uh, and different counseling services, etc., and basically sent her home. The next day she tried to go back but was again sent away. So I went to the ER because I didn't know where else I was supposed to go, she said. I just wanted someone to give me the help that I keep being promised but denied. Health Minister Sarah Hoffman wasn't available for an interview. In a statement, she said, 
We know that access to mental health supports in Calgary and across the province has been a challenge. Hoffman noted that the NDP government ordered a review of mental health and addictions treatment early in its mandate and later granted about $35 million to community groups to implement the plan. Among the agencies that received funds so far is the Calgary Counseling Centre to expand its services, allowing an additional 1,100 Albertans to receive counseling. There's also been cash for suicide prevention and youth programs. The independent review of the mental health system found poor coordination and integration of services and a lack of collaboration between the Alberta government and the provincial health authority. The report cited studies from 2012-2014 that found many Albertans reported at least one of their needs weren't met when they tried to get help. The most common complaint was that they couldn't get counseling. Years later, Danielle said she has long struggled to find a therapist or a psychiatrist who can help her. Still, after her latest stint at the ER, she said a nurse is following up with her to make sure she's doing okay while she waits to get into another outpatient program. After sitting on a wait list for five months, she actually learned last week she may get a spot at the end of October. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web cfrc.ca. Last article for today is from the Huffington Post Canada version. Opinion piece from Arthur Gallant, mental health advocate. He says, I confess I was ashamed of living with mental illness. Despite his own calls to repeatedly tell fellow Canadians not to have shame, Arthur came to the realization that he was struggling in his own way. Since going public as a mental health advocate, Arthur has identified himself as living with anxiety, agoraphobia, and depression, and that's mostly true. He's been clinically diagnosed with generalized generalized anxiety disorder. However, he's not been diagnosed with depression. Rather, it's a symptom of the other mental illnesses that he has. He says, for most of this decade, during public appearances, I've come across as being well-groomed and put together. A facade despite my life having volatile and utter chaotic times. I've struggled to maintain friendships and relationships. I have few friends, have had more boyfriends than I can count, and I've had more employers than I'd like to admit. My adult life has been far from stable, much like my childhood. He goes on to say, I always promised myself that the next man I had a relationship with would become my husband and I wouldn't repeat the same things I always seemed to do that ended my relationships. I promised myself, after hastily quitting a job, that the next job I attained would be my last one, that I wouldn't do things at my next employer that would cause me to want to quit. I would promise myself to work out any differences on the next advisory committee I was appointed to before abruptly resigning due to some sort of disagreement or conflict. After the fact, those promises I made to myself seemed hollow and were rather something I did to provide comfort. In 2014, at a risk of me dropping out of paralegal school, I was referred by my family doctor to short-term psychotherapy with a social worker. I met with a psychiatrist who ended up diagnosing me with borderline personality disorder. The psychiatrist suggested the chaos in my life that I described could be attributed to BPD. I didn't know what borderline personality disorder was, 
but I was offended by the name and walked out on the psychiatrist screaming and crying. What did borderline mean? What was wrong with my personality? I went home, briefly researched it, and was frightened at the first few things I read. I pretended that the diagnosis never happened and instead kept telling people in the media that I had anxiety and depression. Last year, after having the worst mental health crisis I have ever experienced, I went for a two-hour comprehensive psychiatric assessment. I was formally diagnosed as having generalized anxiety disorder, agoraphobia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and borderline personality disorder. While I was unsurprised and more prepared the second time around for another psychiatrist to affirm the diagnosis of BPD, it still felt like a punch in the gut. It wasn't the illness itself that was so hurtful, it was simply the name of it because despite having it, I didn't even know what it was. We're always afraid of what we don't know. The fear of the unknown rattled me, but I also knew that after having a psychiatrist diagnose me with BPD for the second time, that I finally had to own up to it. The National Institute of Mental Health describes BPD as an illness marked by an ongoing pattern of varying moods, self-image, and behavior. These symptoms often result in impulsive actions and problems in relationships with other people. A person with borderline personality disorder may experience episodes of anger, depression, and anxiety that may last from a few hours to days. I have spoken very publicly that there is no shame in living with mental illness, and yet, for the first time in a long time, if ever, I felt immense shame. In the past, I have been told by audience members of speeches I gave that I said something that motivated them to disclose it to others, to find the courage and share that they had a mental illness, and yet I have somehow struggled over the years to find the courage to do the same. I walked out of the hospital the day I was diagnosed as having BPD for the second time and felt very small in a very big world. I had so many questions I immediately began to wonder who I was. What did this mean for me as a human being? Could I continue my work as a mental health advocate after being in denial for so long? Was I being true to myself? Could somebody with BPD even be a mental health advocate? Does having this somehow undermine or erase the opportunities I've had as a result and as a mental health advocate because I previously struggled to own up to my illness? I put myself on a pedestal and somehow created this notion that if I was to continue being successful as an advocate, that my mental health had to be stable. I couldn't stigmatize myself, nor could I have shame. Over the years, I felt there was this huge gap between my audience and as I portrayed myself as somebody whose life was perfect and under control when in fact my life was in chaos. I was ashamed to own up to my illness despite repeatedly telling fellow Canadians not to have shame. I was promoting the drop the stigma movement yet was struggling to drop it myself. In 2013, I appeared in a public service announcement for the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health in which the tagline was, I am not my illness, yet I couldn't bring myself to believe that until now. I aspire to continue to be a mental health advocate. I hope this experience brings me closer to my audience. I will continue to fight against stigma and be a voice that will alter my narrative 
And I will stop telling people not to be ashamed for having a mental illness. I will tell people that I've learned that having shame is a normal part of coming to terms with something that is unfamiliar and scary. I hope that you'll give me a chance. That from the Huffington Post, a mental health advocate by the name of Arthur Gallant, who has recently come to terms with his own mental health issues. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, CFRC.ca. Telephone Aid Line Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating campus community radio in Kingston, Ontario. Over the last 95 years, CFRC's governance has evolved. Once supervised by Queen's University and later by Queen's Alma Mater Society, since 2014, CFRC has been an independent, self-governing, not-for-profit organization. Its board of directors has representation from Queen's University, the AMS and SGPS, CFRC Radio Club, and the Kingston community. Learn more about CFRC, Canada's longest-running campus and community radio station at cfrc.ca. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. to talk. Today's guest is Brad Murray. Brad was on the show back in April and we determined at that time that it would be interesting to do a follow-up maybe about six months later and see how Brad is doing since his uh, surgery. He had a gastric bypass surgery back in March of this year and made some other changes in his life. So Brad, thanks for coming back and sharing an update with us. Uh, thanks for having me. It actually was six months. Uh, it was March 6th, so September 6th, if you want to go that way. So yeah, it was just recently six months. It's been uh, quite the road, actually. It's, it's uh, lots to talk about. And so back in April, when we did the first interview, you had made some significant changes leading up to the surgery in March and one of those was uh, you had banned yourself from Ontario casinos because you had recognized in the year prior that uh, your uh, social gambling habit had kind of turned into something more, and you wanted to. What would you? How would you describe it? Why did you decide to stop gambling? Well, I guess one of the biggest things with talking to the social worker um, prior to surgery and blogs and stuff like that was the addiction transfer. And I knew I already had an addiction gambling. Um, and I guess I didn't really want to, that to intensify even more because I guess 
when you have the surgery, um, food kind of being a coping mechanism, uh, when you can't eat like you used to, then you start to look for alternate uh, behaviors. And uh, because I already knew I had a gambling addiction, I, I knew it would probably intensify. So one of the reasons I, I kind of put that to bed or to rest, if you want to say, um, prior to surgery, uh, for that reason, I did that. Um, and so far, I mean, it's been good. Um, the restriction is strictly in Ontario uh, with all gambling facilities in Ontario. I'm not going to say I'm perfect. I have made a couple of trips to Quebec outside of Ontario because it's legal for me to do that. Um, uh, having that addictive personality, you kind of still look for avenues, but fortunately for me, because it's so far away, I've only gone a couple of times, um, and I am doing uh, much better. I've actually started to not have that feeling of wanting to gamble anymore. It is slowly going away. Hmm. Um, it took time. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do with myself? What am I going to do with my time? Because I was so used to going to the casino, especially when it came in my backyard, like I said before. Um, but yeah, I know over time, it just kind of slowly gets out of your head, if you want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, just get, you just get used to um, not having it available. And tying that into the weight loss surgery, it's the same thing. Uh, it, it definitely takes time after having the weight loss surgery, uh, your food choices, um, uh, after surgery, you have to go through stages of, uh, different types of foods, uh, soft foods and pureed foods and, and all that. And you think, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to have anything again. Mm-hmm. But then you can start to have foods again. And then again, you're, you, you, it's just the same thing. It's, 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 a, it's a, it's a, it stages it's it's progress you just eventually you get to a point i'm six months out now i just know what i can have and can't have and it's almost becoming part of me and i'm not constantly thinking about um what it was like prior to same with the gambling not thinking about what it was like prior to um it's just it just becomes you it just it's it's part of your life and uh it i mean i'm that's just kind of how things have rolled. And it's good because it's like six months out now. I don't feel any different. I'm a hundred pounds lighter. I don't feel any different. I still kind of eat what I want to, but I'm still making selective choices and stuff like that. And it's the same with the gambling. I don't, I don't gamble anymore. I find myself doing other things. So, hmm. so you've lost a hundred pounds as of now, which is significant. So congratulations. Thank you. And I want to get into kind of what life is like living at 100 pounds lighter. Before we do that, I would like to ask, when you decided to go to the casino in Quebec, uh, can you take us through the decision-making process around that and, you know, what, what it was like, you know, as you were making the decision, deciding whether or not to, on the way, getting there, like what was going on in your body, just describe what that was like for us. Well, the one trip was based around my birthday, right? So I was using that as, okay, I haven't been to the casino in seven months. 
perfect opportunity. It's my birthday. I had to work that weekend. I knew my family was going to our trailer park. So I used it as, hey, I'm going to go spend the night. Uh, I'll travel up there. I have some money with me. And, and uh, my wife was okay with it. And uh, it was the whole experience of, oh, this is going to be exciting. Um, and then I got there. I got my hotel. I walked over to the casino. I gambled. I lost the old typical woohoo. Uh, I, went back, I got up in the morning. I never even ate breakfast. I went back again and gambled. And then I did the traveling home for two and a half hours. And the only thing going through my head the whole time was uh, I never won anything, lost. Uh, wow. Did I ever feel lonely? My whole family's at the trailer. I had to work the weekend, but instead of going and hanging out with them that night, I made the choice to go to the casino, spend the night, came up with this brilliant idea that was my birthday, perfect opportunity. And uh, quite frankly, it was almost like the icing on the cake then. It had been so long since I had done it, and do I really miss it? And there was no gratification whatsoever. It was, it was, it was just like empty if I have to explain it that way because mm. I did not get anything out of that trip whatsoever other than I was by myself and I spent 600 bucks on top of a hotel room to hang out by myself and I think it just has helped me that much further into not wanting to do it anymore sure and so was there any part of you as you were kind of conceiving of the plan, as you say, with, you know, your wife knew about it, so it wasn't like you were hiding it. Um, was there any part of you that was kind of feeling like, if I open this door, am I going to get sucked back into a direction that I don't want to go? Um, well, you know what, honestly, I think if I had won money, it would have been a different story. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what plays with your mind the most because once you win, it makes you want to go back even more. Sure. Now my, um, self exclusion, uh, deadline, I did it for a year. comes up this year, December 6th. Uh, at that point I can decide whether or not I want to reinstate takes one month and then I can start allowing myself to go back into the casinos. But I can tell you right now, it's not on my list of things to do and nor will I ever probably do that because it's in my blood and I know that. And mm. that's the reason I won't do it. And so because I think I will just go right back into bad habits and I know enough now that it's not the life I want to live. Hmm. And so the first first time was kind of a celebration of your birthday, and then how did you get around to kind of making the second decision to go do it a second time? Well, the first time was actually prior to the birthday. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, it was just uh, I had done a string of night shifts and just decided, well, I won't interfere with my family and, and, and what they're doing and stuff if I just... Be I'm on another night shift. I'll just pretend I'm going to work. And I'll, you know, two and a half hour drive, gamble for four or five hours, turn around and come back. It's a long trip. 
I mean, it's a long trip when you used to be able to go five minutes to the casino. Now you're doing two and a half hour trips. And mm. you do start to question yourself, what am I doing here? What am I, what is the purpose of this? And, and how, did, how did you answer that to yourself inwardly? Um, I could have done a lot more with the money. Something a little more exciting, not only for myself, but for my family as well. I mean, it could have been a it could have been an overnight day trip, but a really good one with the amount of money I spent. And I wasn't getting any gratification from it. I thought I was, but then realized this is crazy. With five hours on the highway just to go gambling, mm-hmm. it's a little nutty. And so, when you were posing that question to yourself, like, "What am I doing?" What what is the answer that you? What were you doing? What did you think you were doing? Oh, I was just trying to. I don't know. Uh, you call it filling a void. It's an addiction. It's like if 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 you love doing something, you're going to do it. Um, it. It's just an addiction. I don't know how else to explain it. Whether it's smoking, drinking, drugs, gambling. Those are kind of bad addictions. Uh, I'm sure there's other addictions that. Are, are, are healthier maybe um right it's just it's just all in your head it's, it's what you like to do so you will find any means to do it the reason i asked that i work with and have worked with a lot of people dealing with addiction issues over the years and that that question to ourselves is a critical uh juncture in terms of we have a part of ourselves that is asserting itself recognizing the craziness or the whatever about this situation, the absurdity of it. And that's the kind of self-aware, responsible part of ourselves that is trying to assert itself and and shut down any further uh, steps along this path. And at some point, either that happens and we turn around and we walk the other way, or another part of ourselves reasserts itself even stronger and shuts that part of us up and we continue to move closer to the source of that addiction. So I think that's uh, it's an important thing for us to kind of chat about a little bit because a lot of people, whether they're trying to quit smoking, they're trying to stop smoking pot, they're trying to stop drinking, maybe they have uh, gambling, sex addiction, all of these different things, and there are so many opportunities along the way to to make a different choice, and we continue to stuff that voice that's coming up and trying to say, "Hey, what are we? Where are we going with this? What are we doing?" So, anyway, so several months later, you've lost a hundred pounds. How do you feel? What is it like to be in a body that's a hundred pounds lighter, a body and a mind? I don't know if the mind thing is there yet. I am starting to experience some stuff, but physically it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, I think some of the things that, uh, most people don't, uh, really think about being overweight, like getting in and out of a car, tying your shoes up, getting dressed, um, just in and out of the shower. Uh, like I, remember, I have a trailer where the shower is really small and I remember banging around and hitting the glass and just because you just can't move because you're a big guy. Um, 
basically. It's it's incredible. I, I, I can't explain how I feel. I mean, my my shoulders are broader and up more now, and my head's up. And I think um, I'm starting to realize that as well. Just and, and it's really weird to say, but just how people people talk to me at work. Uh, it's it's really strange. Um, um, I just get the impression that I'm not big anymore per se and people look at me differently it's incredible I feel amazing and I'm so happy I did it 100 pounds I mean I still can't even perceive 100 pounds in my head you know sometimes I think I should go to the gym and put four 25 pound weights together and try and lift it right it's pretty it's pretty incredible like yeah. physically I feel incredible and so you mentioned you know in a way you you're speaking about confidence so can you think back to what your confidence level was like a year ago and and how it has changed today cuz confidence the reason i ask that is confidence is so critical and key for anything in our life and i notice in working with clients and various environments and so forth when our confidence is suffering, our self-esteem is suffering, then it just limits so much of our ability to be out in the world and enjoying ourselves and sharing our skills and all that stuff. So the confidence is it, it, like, for, like, let's say from a work example, um, my head was down. I do my job. I was a big guy. I uh, was super polite to everybody and I never felt like I was capable of doing anything more than what I was already doing because of my appearance. Hmm. Uh, I think that I always felt like people would see me being overweight as a, um, I don't know, uh, I, I had no control on my life, that I wasn't able to, I wasn't capable of doing any more because that's who I was as a big guy, that I was already a failure in the health aspect of everything. So now that I've lost all this weight, and I and I notice people talking to me differently and, and whatnot that, you know, my, my head kind of goes higher and I'm starting to say to myself, you know what, I should do different things here at work because now I've got that perception that I'm not a failure and um, I've been so successful in, in, in doing this that I, I should do other things um, in my career to better myself, maybe make some more money. Uh, of course, everybody wants to make more money. Um, so yeah, maybe that, that would be a, kind of a, a good example of, mm. of of that. I mean, another example would be being at our trailer park. You know, just 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 being in your bathing suit and getting into the pool with a crowd of people around. Mm-hmm. I don't have a perfect body. I still have fat on me or whatever you want to call it. I'm still like bigger than normal, but telling you the comfort level is different because people aren't looking at you like holy cow look at the size of the stomach on that guy i don't get those looks anymore i just get in the pool enjoying the time with the kids and, and i almost feel like um, i'm not a, a sideshow so yeah hmm. there's there's a couple of examples of, uh, of my confidence levels you're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Back in a minute. AMHS KFLA's vocational services connect employers with skilled workers recovering from mental health challenges. This free program offers individual assessments, job preparation training, and placement. 
Employers are matched with qualified, reliable workers and receive ongoing support for hires as they lead their lives in positive new directions. For more information, call 613-544-1356 or visit amhs-kfla.ca. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. to hear the YGK Breakout on CFRC 101.9 FM or CFRC.ca. You'll hear from local artists, Queen's University artists, and a wide range of stories from bands in the area. Learn more about our local up-and-comers on the YGK Breakout on CFRC. Welcome back. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web CFRC.ca. Speaking with Brad Murray today about his uh, gastric bypass surgery that he had back in March of this year, but also some other things that he's been looking at improving in his life, his uh, uh, alcohol consumption, gambling, a few different things that he's been working on, and we wanted to get an update from Brad. So when you were talking about your confidence and how that's changed and how it's impacted you at work and how you view other people and how they view you. Um, do you, maybe I'm maybe I'm reading into this, but when you were talking earlier, the idea came to me that is there a part of you previously that felt like when people would look at you and see an overweight guy that they felt that your life was out of control? I think I put the only, the, the label on myself as a failure. Uh, that's how I perceived myself because I pretty much couldn't look after myself from a physical standpoint. Uh, so I just perceived right away that people thought of me as a failure. Hmm. Um, it's just kind of how I always felt because I was big. Uh, of course, I, I always said genetics. Genetics definitely played a role, but also um, I made poor choices. Of course, I did. But yeah, no, I mean, like if you can't if you can't look after yourself from a healthy standpoint, then other people are just going to say, "Yeah, you're a failure." Mm-hmm. And I mean, the the issue with weight is is one where, like, if you have an alcohol addiction, I mean you can you can hide that easier if you have other addictions it's easier to conceal that but if someone is you know obese or extremely overweight um that's it's it's apparent it's it's one of those things that's readily apparent to anyone who's around so when we're yeah. when we're trying to improve our our self control in a variety of ways um, and be disciplined, it can be, it can send a message when someone is very overweight to other people that are around that that person struggles with self-control. Whereas if I'm around somebody who's an alcoholic and they're, maybe they've been drinking, but I don't know that. And they're not, they're not drunk enough to reveal to me that they're out of control through their choices um, it's, it's a different thing. So I think that, uh, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that, but so you've lost a hundred pounds. You feel amazing. You feel, uh, like you can do many more things, go swimming without feeling embarrassed. And 
how has this impacted your your relationships that are you know your your family your wife your your friends like what's what's the impact been in that area uh i think the relationships have gotten a lot better uh with my children um we tend to do a lot more uh outdoor physical activities uh having a trailer um and uh always being outdoors through the summertime I'm more prone to getting in the boat, going fishing, uh, going to the park, uh, going to the pool with them. Um, I even notice that they come and ask me to do a lot more stuff because I'm not saying no all the time. So, yeah, that relationship has grown tremendously. Um, I mean, I wasn't that bad before, but, but I would put them off a lot from doing things. I'd always stamp kind of back and I say, oh, I'll just get dinner right here. I'm just going to do this or I want a nap or whatnot. So, yeah, I know that's grown tremendously. And, uh, and I, I really notice the, the kids uh, coming to me a lot more, which is which is great. I, I, it, it feels great. Uh, with my wife, uh, same thing. Um, uh, I'm kind of just kind of like more active with her and uh, we do more stuff, go for walks and, and, and whatnot. And, and, you know, I don't want to get uh, into too much detail, but uh, the sexual part of our uh, relationship has uh, increased tremendously as well. Um, just physically uh, being more confident in myself um, and being smaller, it makes a huge difference. So, yeah, definitely some pros to that as well. So all in all, physically, it's been amazing. And you can totally see the, the, the changes in, in my family and friends as well, um, doing more stuff with everybody. It's great. Hmm. And is there anything that you've been surprised by, either in a positive way or a negative way, something you've been surprised by, you know, six, seven months down the road? Um, you know, I still question myself because you hit weight plateaus, whether or not I'm going to start putting the weight back on because I'm not perfect. I still make bad choices. Do I recognize it more? Yes. Uh, is it hard to make really bad choices? Yes, because you can't physically consume certain foods or you can and they make you sick, however you want to look at it. Um, and so when you when you say if you eat certain foods they make you sick they they actually you don't just get a sore tummy for example like you at times you will actually throw up as a result of that. Yes, I will. Uh, there's and, and it could be anything, you know, you think that okay, well protein is a main, main factor in our in our food choices. And so I'll consume a protein source and it can just be all the speed of eating it and it could make me sick to the sick of throwing to the point of throwing up. Um, that's just kind of how it rolls. And then you have it again the next time. But if you take your time and chew properly, then you're fine. So it's, it's a roller coaster ride. You're still kind of learning. Um, but being down the road now, I feel like I can eat anything I want. I still make bad choices. Um, but for the most part, I'm always trying to make better choices because of protein being the most crucial part, uh, which I've been told um, for food, you know, you're always kind of leaning towards that. But, you know, you go to functions, you have uh, birthday parties or, or summertime functions, outdoor functions, and there's always a wide variety of foods. 
Will you pick the wrong thing once in a while? Yeah, probably. Will you pay for it? Sometimes. Sometimes not. Hard to say. It's mm. a weird, weird, weird thing, and you're always constantly learning your own body on how that's going to work. Uh, and then the other thing, too, is like with weight plateaus and stuff like that, you always feel like you're failing. Um, but then the scale always surprises you down the road. My biggest thing is it, 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 even though I get on the scale every day, they tell you not to. I suggest not because it really throws you off tune sometimes and you think you're, you're messing up and then two, three, four weeks, whatever the case may be, you start dropping again. Um, and just kind of keep your head focused on the fact on how you feel, not what you weigh. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard for me to say because nobody's going to listen to me. I don't even listen to me. I I still get on the scale and I look at that number as, 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 as my achievement, but Really, it should really matter on how you feel, how close fit, and, and just enjoying your life now as a lighter person because that's what counts. So, why do you think you struggle to follow that advice? Uh, because I think I'm always looking for like a number. I I don't know. I just I just see it as success. And I think it's maybe embedded in our heads over time. If you've ever had uh, struggles with weight, um, the scale always seems to be kind of your where you're at. It, 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 it's a it's a physical number to, to determine where you're at, and because everything is is mapped out in scales with your BMI and your weight and your height and everything like that. Doctors they always refer to these charts. It just seems like your go-to. That's how you're supposed to determine whether or not you're healthy or not. Mm-hmm. So I've always just that's it's just the way it is. That's just that it's always gone to it for years. I've always gone to it, and uh, I'll continue to. And I hate to say it, but I will. But if you can kind of like minimize that, uh, getting on the scale instead of doing it every day and doing it every couple of weeks. You'll save yourself a lot of stress, I think. So, does it when you when you're checking every day? Do you does it stress you out? Uh, not always. Sometimes, yes, if you have huge jumps. But then I constantly go on Google and remind myself of water weight and what did I eat before? Did I have a lot of salt or this or that? Um, I've always read things where you have about a five to eight pound. Um, weight ratio throughout the day or two days or whatever the case may be. So I have to kind of constantly remind myself that. But if you're having a bad day, yeah, it, it can it can interfere with the start of your day. And you don't want it to, but it does because, I mean, that's what I'm focused on. That's what I had done. I had weight loss surgery, right? So it's it's one of my big focuses right now. It's It's, it's my path and... I can't help myself. And so with where you're at now with your weight, you've lost about 100 pounds. Do you feel content with where you're at? Is your goal to just maintain where you're at and and you would be very satisfied with that? Or are you always striving to try to lose more weight? Or or where's your mindset with uh, where does your mindset sit with that today? I haven't really thought about it. I, to be honest with you, I never set myself any goals. Um, 
right now I think I'm pretty happy with where I'm at, but uh, as I continue to lose weight, um, I think I'll just feel that much better. I don't want to go past a certain point. I don't want to become a skeleton or anything, but I know I still have a little bit on me that I could lose. Um, but I am very content where I'm at. I mean, I'm, I'm purchasing clothes at stores I never thought I would. So just that feeling altogether, I mean, I, 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 I'm good. Um, but yeah, no, I never set a goal. So, um, nobody told me to set a goal. I'm just kind of rolling with the punches at this point. Hmm. And I mean, what does it feel like to go into stores and shop in places that you never thought you'd be walking into? It's really strange because I still, I go into them and I'm like, I'm, I'm like, no, it won't fit. It won't fit. And then I put it on and I'm thinking, holy crap, it fits. It's, it's a different feeling because I feel now, uh, when I dress a little differently, I've, I mean, I've purchased maybe five, ten, maybe ten pieces of new clothing at, at name brand stores. Uh, again, I'm going back on the confidence thing. You, your, your shoulder, your head goes higher, right? Because you think, oh, yeah, look at me because I'm dressing a little nicer now. And you get the odd look, which is pretty cool and something I've never experienced before. So, yeah, I, I like it, but I still hate shopping. But I like Where do we go from here? What else do you think is important to share with our listeners? You've been through this major surgery. It's gone up to this point very, uh, very well. A lot of, a lot of major successes along the path that continue. What are some things that maybe you haven't been as happy about, and you feel that they are they are an area that you want to continue to work on? point if there isn't anything I'm really not happy about um I personally don't encourage anybody to do what I did but I want to but at the same time in my last interview I told people that I I don't I don't want them to make this decision based on my on me personally saying yeah you really should I don't want to encourage anybody to do it because it's not, I don't want, you know, if they have complications, I don't want it to come back on me. And I don't want to be that person that says, yeah, you know, it's, it's the best. It, it, it really is. But deep down, I wish I could say that because it is genetically, or even if you have problems with, with weight loss or you've had the roller coaster ride of, 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 of dieting, uh, always try, struggling with it. It is good. I, I mean, like I said, I wish I had done it sooner. It, I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's really amazing. And I feel amazing. And, uh, I still won't say you should do it. I won't. Because it takes a certain person to do this, and there is struggles and stuff, but pretty incredible. That's all I got to say. Well, I think your advice is wise, and it, it speaks to how happy you are with the decision that you've made for yourself, but I think you're right that there's a lot of factors that people have to consider in their life and at what stage they're at, how old they are, all that stuff, how long they've been dealing with their issues, uh, different things that they've tried that maybe have worked a little or not worked at all. And uh, it seems for you anyway, up to this point, that the right 
mix of factors kind of came together at the right time and and this was you knew deep down for yourself the right decision the right path to step on and to continue on so uh, I applaud you for trusting your feelings trusting your being open to what this may mean for you and how it's worked out for you and uh, I, I, I also think that your advice is wise in the sense that not everything is good for everybody. Um, I can't, I shouldn't eat gluten because it makes me feel bad, but there's a lot of people that can eat gluten. So I'm not going to tell everybody they should stop eating gluten because it's bad for me. Um, some things work very well for some people and just due to their body and their mind and their whole makeup and, and, we have to get quiet and go deep with ourselves for extended periods of time and reflection to really truly get a sense of what is right for us. And listening to gurus who have these formulaic approaches to living our lives, um, there's a lot of disappointed people out there who have followed advice um, that has led nowhere because they put more stock in what that person was saying and less in their own ability to discern whether that was good advice for them at the time. So uh, I think you've shared some wise words. As you look ahead, you're almost, uh, it's we're heading into the fall, the winter time, and soon enough it'll be a year, a uh, year anniversary of your surgery. And how do you how do you view the future? How has your perspective if you think back to you know last summer and you were still gambling quite a bit, you were drinking a lot of alcohol, you weren't happy with your weight, you were in the process of exploring this surgery as an option and in the emotional weight of what you were feeling at that time compared to what you're feeling today. How has your vision of the future uh, changed through this last 10 months? Well, I think it's changed considerably. I think I'm already looking at possibly applying for jobs at work that, you know, have a little bit more responsibility, uh, possibly a little bit more money, where before I never had, I always was like, no, I'm just going to do what I'm do, put my head down, I don't really care what goes down from there. Um but looking forward into the future too, I, I do realize that I need to, to stay focused and stay on track. Um, and I do try to make the best food choices every day as best as I can. And I still keep that in my head that it, it plays a critical role in continuing on because I know that one year, two year, roughly ballpark, I'm guessing just hearing, just reading people's blogs and stuff like that. You, you do eventually hit a point where you can't lose anymore and it becomes a maintaining stage, which is a totally different battle. And when that time frame comes, I want to be prepared for it and I want to uh, keep the focus there um, because having reached my goal this far, um, I want to stay there and I want to, because uh, I'm happy with who I am and I'm happy with where I'm at and I want to continue that path from here on forward. So, uh, Future-wise, yeah, I just I see it as an uphill road from here, and I just want to continue doing what I'm doing and, and uh, hope for the best. Well, that's great. 
Awesome. Great to have you back. And maybe six months from now, we'll have you back again and do another uh, check-in, see how things are going, see what's changed, what hasn't. And I think that's very helpful for our listeners and anybody who wants to tune in and and uh, benefit from kind of the inside uh, dynamics that that affect a person when they're you know wrestling with addiction issues and making decisions to move away from that stuff and and lessen the impact that those things have in their life. So a lot of um, good can be had from listening to your story and others, Brad. So thanks again for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you like great music from the 60s and 70s and good covers, listen to Frankly Speaking, music to tickle your memory bone on Fridays at 1 p.m. on CFRC Radio.
This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.